the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. This is Sexagesima, if you please, Sunday, which is the second Sunday before Ash Wednesday. The name Sexagesima, which means 60th before Easter Day, although it is in fact the 57th. Next week, Quinquagesima, 50th, gets it mathematically right. We're all about mathematical rightness, not, but today we have to be watching for it. You'll see why. Now, Vatican II eliminated these traditions. Anglicanism keeps them on, perhaps because of their mathematical inaccuracy. (laughs) We should note that math is important. We are back in ordinary time, which means ordinal time, which means our days are numbered. Now, the number of days that connect the season after Candlemas, or the Feast of the Presentation, with the ramping up of Lent, vary from year to year according to what the moon is doing. And I never quite know before it's too late whether we have a few Sundays or many, but the whole system depends on getting started. When I approached Brad Cathy then for a bulletin cover for that little period after the extended end of Epiphany and the beginning of Lent, I did so at the 11th hour, as I am wont to do with Brad, in fear and trembling. I want you to take out the bulletin cover because it provides the text for today. This is the fifth time since the beginning of the Gospel of John has been read in this church since Christmas Eve, and I'm not going to take it up now either. So we'll get it another year. We're going to go for big themes This is a bunch of very universal texts, and the texts are condensed in this beautiful design by Brad Cathy. I'm getting there. Within 24 hours, Brad had produced this cover. Good to get out the paintbrush, he very graciously commented. I asked him to give the sermon, and he pointed out that the sermon was here. And a bunch of words weren't going to do much to make it clearer than it was, and I understand that. But when he sent me the material that he had used to make this really effortless drawing, the spiral unfolding these sort of muted rainbow colors, I understand, understood that behind any drawing that is effortless but accurate, there is someone who can draw very precisely. And he gave me a bunch of actual photographic uh, uh, sources of what he was up to. Because beneath the softness of these brush strokes, With that text superimposed, all things were made, and through him, without him, and without him, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. This is very much the cosmic Christ. This is not Jesus, my boyfriend today, if that Jesus ever gets into this place. This is the Christ who made the whole thing and felt he had done a good job with it. So superimposed over the word, the logos, the word of the word, if you like, these colored letters, the helical rainbow follows the exact contours of the shell of the chambered nautilus, as you already guessed, nautilus pompilius. Let me explain. That is a 
sea creature. If you put the shell of this sea creature through a bandsaw on the lateral axis, assuming the sea creature himself had moved on or herself, it is found to be a perfect logarithmic or equiangular or growth spiral. Very precise mathematical figure. The type of figure which so captivated mathematicians like Descartes or Jacob Bornoulli, who called it Spira Mirabilis, that he had it carved on his tombstone. He was fascinated by the fact, which you can't exactly see here, the size of the spiral increases, but its shape is unaltered with each successive curve. The shape stays always the same. It's always getting bigger, however. If you look up into the skies, you will see Spiral galaxies, if you look from the skies, you will see extratropical cyclones, you'll see the heads of sunflowers, and all over nature, this precise spiral reproducing itself at every conceivable scale. Bernoulli, as I said, wanted it engraved on his headstone along with the phrase, Eadem mutata resurgo, although changed, I shall arise the same. Adam, although the same, in other words, the same, Adam, all things the same, mutata, changing, I will rise. Now, I expect that Brunelli's resurrection hope is shared by many of us. We want to be the same. God wants us to be different, and we kind of struggle these things out as we live, self-similarity. The same old self, but just bigger. That would be my option. But God is trying to make the case that in the shape of the spiral itself, there is the pattern of growth for us. Spiritual growth, physical growth, the growth of the creation. If you look at the spiral, well, you could have to imagine that the way it grows, segment by segment, as the creature itself grows, is always based on an inner Radius in which the radial, the focal point, stays pretty well as close to the center as possible. So on one side, you have a focal point that rarely moves, and on the other, one that just keeps getting wider and wider and wider. There's a huge tension then between this tightness at the center and this expansiveness at the outside. If I'm looking for my ideal of growth, which is just more of the same. Thank you, Lord. I like the way I am. Just keep me going the way I'm going. Railroad tracks toward the center. Then it's two parallel lines reaching out equally with me in the middle. God is saying that the creature is always off-center in the growth of the creature. And that you experience this enormous tension which is trying to pull you apart as you live your way into more and more expanding horizons, reaching out always from the core, but embracing more and more of our surroundings. Now, that's what life on the planet is like. That's what life in Christ is like. And that's how our culture lives as well, resisting and yet living within this pattern of growth. We get the part about expanding, about our grasp always catching up with our reach and in the process consuming more and more space and more and more matter and leaving a bigger and bigger icon. We've heard that word already, a bigger and bigger stamp, a bigger and bigger footprint on the planet. 
Indeed, our footprint should more and more look like a jackboot as our culture keeps reaching out. But I'll be gentle today. And this expansion leaves us always in short supply. We don't live according to our needs. We live according to our wants, and our wants are by definition unlimited. And the space and the stuff we need to fulfill those wants eventually ends up being appropriated from others, often by force, sometimes by violent force. This happens at every level of human social organization, from empires and states down to District 200 and Black Friday specials. And in this, we are only following the prevailing understanding of the pattern for natural growth, Darwinism, if you like, espoused as a social philosophy, most emphatically by those who like at least as a theological explanation of natural growth. So we are a little conflicted, if you like, when we look at this model of growth, when we reflect that this same creation is the handiwork of the second person of the Trinity, and that this follows the pattern for growth that we hear again and again, as we did in St. Paul today, in Colossians. Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, this we hear again and again, all things, and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist." the Father from whom and for whom, the Son through whom all things are. They say it again and again, all things. Not just created, but sustained, upheld in being, kept going, and more than that, redeemed, as we heard at the catechesis hour. The same God who makes all things and sets them out to be done perfectly, who gives us all kinds of wisdom, to inform our carrying out of the grand design, is also standing by waiting for us to mess up and then come in when we least expect him, if we ever get around to inviting him in, to show us that his real specialty is redemption, taking what was broken and making it better than it even was when it was first made, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Well, we've got the whole gospel in here. Making peace, reconciling, binding up the wounds of creation and anointing them with the blood that flows from his own hands and his side. Making peace by his blood. Now, we often in our hearts regard the blood of the cross as just a bad end to a glorious career. But it shows us, or should, how bloody-minded we are at the end of the day. It took his blood to show us what we human beings are capable of doing. And the blood that we spill spills over into nature herself, red in tooth and claw. But we look to the end of the story as well as the beginning. And what keeps us going is the promise of redemption that we get to get us through every episode of human depravity and natural calamity to that day when the lion will eat straw with the ox and the wolf and the lamb, natural predators, will dwell and presumably graze together with ease. 
In the meantime, we are presented with the paradox of creation, that same lion who represents the triune God's fecundity and grace. The lion roars for their prey and seek their food from God. The sun rises, and they are gone to lay themselves down in their dens. Beautiful picture, the day's work done, and the lions go to rest and digest the gazelles or antelopes upon whom they have feasted. We don't want to share that with our kids, but that's how creation runs. And God seems to be taking a very ambiguous position towards it. That dependence on God, however, has never been lessened. As the psalm said, all of these creatures look to you, God, to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it, they receive. You open your hand and they are filled with good. When you hide your face in anger, they are troubled. When you take away their breath, they die and return again to the dust. End quote. And what of God, then, is the question we feel, as all these look to him. In vain, it would seem. All these whose lives are filled with joy and grace, singing the praise of their creator and gathering us up in that great hymn, but whose ends are nasty, brutish, and often very prolonged indeed. Where is God in all this? That same God who we just expounded from Scripture, omnipresent, sustaining, and even redeeming, rescuing his creatures, that very good God, who when we look at creation makes many of us doubt from time to time the depth and sincerity of our desire to spend eternity with him at all. How long, O Lord, the psalmist says, who shares that precise perspective, telling us it's just fine to ask that question of God. We should do it more often. I, like Bernoulli, say in Nuce, Eadem mutato resurgo, adding this piece, putting these words into his mouth, et expecto resurrectionem mortuorem. I await the resurrection from the dead. This story doesn't end with creation. This story doesn't end with death. This story continues on and on. But it's not an easy story to tell. And when you stand at the foot of a grave, as many of us have in the last few days, and start throwing dirt and flowers on the big concrete slab as it is lowered down into the ground, you're still left with a very brute fact that what happens after here, we really haven't known or experienced anywhere near than the level of the promise that God is giving us. We go on faith. I, like Bernoulli, await the resurrection from the dead with hope. And all those who are to be reconciled to and through Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. And that hope is brighter some days and more paler others. But it's all I've got. It's all we've got. And once that spiral opens up, the description in the word of God of what's ahead is as terse as the description of this creation is fulsome, probably because this creation is our end as well as our beginning, transformed into a thing of great beauty, great harmony, and great peace. For now, however, 
I am forced more and more to contemplate the possibility that when I think of Father, Son, and Spirit disengaged from all this, conspiring together to gaze passively at all our sadness from some high celestial eminence, or even that they may be looking somewhere else from time to time when we are suffering, or that they do not see or hear or take notice of this groaning, I have to invoke a God who is quite not so detached. And I look at the God who we see in Christ, as today's texts have said again and again. You want to see the Father, Jesus says, look at me, I am him. And as Christ suffers, therefore, so the Father suffers. We have no claim on any knowledge that he did, and we have no guarantee that he does not. We have no secret wisdom that allows us to say one way or the other that the Father who made all this thing in love has managed to pull himself out of it and do what we all want to do as well, not to suffer. Rather, when we look at the world and we look at the word, we see a universe in which suffering has dignity, suffering has worth. Indeed, suffering is the wisdom of God. Suffering is the foolish wisdom of the cross, just as weakness is the strength of the cross. And all this stuff we try to make happen in our world, co-opting the church, thank you very much, has nothing to do whatsoever with God's plan or who God is. We have a God who went to his world, emptying himself of all his glory, so that he could go to the cross, suffering for the redemption of a suffering creation, and suffers still. As Robert Farrer Capon writes in Hunting the Divine Fox, and I quote, Christ wins in every triumph and loses in every loss. Christ dies when a chicken dies and rises when an egg hatches. He lies slain in the wreckage of all Aprils. He weeps in the ruins of all springs. This strange but gorgeous world is the way it is because incomprehensively that is his style. The gospel of the incarnation is preached not so that we can tell men that the world now means something it didn't mean before, but so they may finally learn what it has been about all along. God suffers. God suffers because God loves. You cannot separate those two any way you try. Because God chooses to love, because God chooses to make something other than himself to love, and gave that something the freedom to love him back or not, just like any true love. The freedom to love or not, which is not freedom at all. Don't tell me we're free to love who we want to love. We have no say in this matter. We love who we love. We're free in how we love in finding out the loving thing to do, and the loving thing to do may to do be to do nothing at all, but to love in silence and at a distance, to suffer in patience. And remember this, patience means letting something happen to one. 
And there is more dignity and worth to patience and to suffering than we dare ever imagine. If God in Christ teaches us one thing, if the God who dared to set aside his power, his almightiness, to love his creation and his creatures, teaches us one thing, it is that the cost of love is paid in suffering. Someday, some way, we may all know a little more. For now, we trust. We cling to this trust, this faith as best we can, that someday that love, that divine love, shown on the cross and shown in creation and shown in the cross written on the heart of creation, that love will conquer everything that God in Christ will be all in all, and all shall see it. Amen. Please stand.